Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 291, The Tombs, Five Points Notorious House of Detention. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And the Bowery Boys podcast is returning to the neighborhood of Five Points, the notorious place made famous in gangs of New York, an infamous place of vice, squalor, and crime, legendary in New York City history. Yes, it was home to all of those things, Greg, but it was also home to some real landmarks of order. And one of those things was the tombs or its official name, the New York Halls of Justice and House of Detention. This was a prison in Lower Manhattan located just on the border of the Five Points neighborhood, whose very name has caused generations of New Yorkers to shudder. This was no ordinary prison or jail. It was of massive size in the style of an Egyptian mausoleum and was so famous, notorious in its day perhaps, that detention centers that are near that spot today still wear that nickname, the tombs. Since it was originally constructed in the 1830s, this house of detention, or those who would replace it, those other tombs that would replace it, has figured into countless stories that we've told on the show. There has been a part in many stories, Greg, where a prominent figure in the story gets hauled off downtown yeah. <laughs> to the tombs. From Madame Ristel to Boss Tweed. To suspects in the murders of Helen Jewett or Harvey Burdell. For both criminals and those who were not charged with crimes, but were perhaps witnesses, were also locked up in the tombs. And amazingly, as you said, that is a name that still persists today. Today's current detention facility, which is located just across the street and up a block, is still referred to as the Tombs. But how do the Tombs get such a ghastly reputation? And, of course, how did it get that name? Well, allow us to detain you for a while as we visit the history of the Tombs, Five Points' notorious house of detention. Let's begin this story of the tombs with an infamous episode, a description of the very first execution by hanging, which occurred at the tombs over 180 years ago on January 12th, 1839. 
The criminal was named Edward Coleman. He was considered the most powerful criminal in Five Points in the year 1838 when he married a woman named Anne, a beloved figure here in the neighborhood for selling hot corn on the street. In fact, they called her the Pretty Hot Corn Girl. Now, whether by law or by cruelty of Mr. Coleman or both, Anne would hit the streets, selling hot corn, and would return at the end of the day to give Edward all of her earnings for that day. Well, on one summer day that year in 1838, she returned with very little money. Sales had been quite poor that particular day. Coleman then flew into a rage and chased the woman down the street to Broadway, where he took out his fury upon her, brutally killing her for all to see. Coleman would be arrested and would be one of the very first prisoners kept at the tombs, which opened that very year, and would be the very first person to be executed here. From the New York Evening Post, writing on January 14, 1839, quote, Edward Coleman, the murderer who cut his wife's throat on Broadway a few months since, was hung on Saturday afternoon at three o'clock in the yard of the Hall of Justice. There was a great throng in the streets around the prison, but few only were admitted to witness the execution. Coleman was a man of large stature and great appearance of strength. He met his death with apparent indifference, walking firmly from his cell to the gallows, looking up composedly to the top, and finally bending his head to have a cap pulled over his face. He expired with little struggle. After he was cut down, some galvanic experiments were performed on his body, but without any novel or interesting results. Wow. Uh, so much for bagels, huh, Greg? <laughs> yes, we're, we're on to a different subject this week. Can we go back to bagels? No, uh, I'm sorry. That was a very dramatic story, and he was the first execution in the tombs. What was that bit about galvanic Experiments. Experiments. All I'm going to say, and maybe we'll approach this for another time, but in the early 19th century, experiments were actually done upon the dead bodies of criminals uh, with electricity to observe muscle and other bodily functions. And I don't. It was, let's just say a bit too grim, even for this show. But I'm glad you still went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh yeah, it was reading a, all about it. It was a depressing afternoon. Okay. But you've managed in that grisly story to take us inside the tombs the year that it opened in yes. 1838. Mm -hmm. Could you kind of situate the story here? Where, where is the tombs located and how did we get here? Yes. So the building officially called the New York Halls of Justice and House of Detention, mm -hmm. a.k.a. the original tombs, was New York's central house of detention for much of the 19th century. It opened in 1838 in the area of today's Civic Center, Chinatown. Northeast of City Hall. Yes, and just right next to today's Columbus Park, which back in the day, of course, was the notorious slum neighborhood of Five Points. It was located between Center Street, Franklin Street, Elm Street, which is actually today's Lafayette, and Leonard Street. Which is a one-block plot of land. Yes, it was a, the size of one city block. It was torn down in 1902, and a series of other detention houses, one of them on this spot and two others across the street, would also be nicknamed the Tombs, including today's Manhattan Detention Complex. 
and it was officially called the New York Halls of Justice and House of Detention. I get the House of Detention part. That's that's the jail part. Why the Halls of Justice? Well, because it was the headquarters of the Super Friends. I'm kidding. <laughs> I marvel at these jokes sometimes, Greg. Um, they're DC, but I'll let that pun fly. Oh. <laughs> And the the Hall of Justice here had a, it had many type of courts and it was also a detention or jail here a one stop um, shop yeah there was a police court here there were city courts in addition to being a containment for prisoners and of course many that weren't actually accused it was just a holding pen so th- this was not a long term prison facility no. this is where people were held while they awaited trial yes so. It, it, one way to think of it is that technically it was a place where people passed through mm-hmm. either to freedom or to other facilities, although in reality, a lot of people spent a lot of time here. The halls of justice were uh, sometimes crowded. Very crowded. But this was not the city's first prison. No, no. This story begins actually in the late 18th century after the Revolutionary War um, with a couple prison buildings that were located in the area of today's City Hall Park. One building called the New Jail. Okay. The, the new it's actually spelled G A O L. But this oh. was so this was a an early building and actually was interestingly would later be turned into almost a debtor's prison mm-hmm. before N- bankruptcy laws. Yeah, New York jailed people in debt until the year 1832. Wow. Later a larger facility was built named Bridewell. Bridewell, which was located just north of City Hall in the the space that would later be occupied by the Tweed Courthouse. Yes, and we mentioned that in our Tweed Courthouse show recently. Meanwhile, the state of New York decided that it needed a prison of its own. You know, there are many different laws that are being broken on federal, city level. So the state needed a prison. They decided to build their facility well outside the city limits of New York. In fact, west of quiet Greenwich Village. This prison was called Newgate and opened in 1797 and was operated until 1828. West of Greenwich Village? Like West Village? Yes. West Village had the first state prison in New York State on Christopher Street and Weehawken. Today, that's the Weehawken Historic District. Do you remember going to Rock Bar? In the West Village. Oh, yeah. They have like an outdoor spot for beer. Yeah. On Christopher? Yes. Uh, Christopher and Weehawken. That's where the prison used to be. By 1828, though, there's clearly more city residents moving to Greenwich Village, and it's becoming incorporated into the center of the city. So they closed Newgate. They moved some inmates into a new facility over at Bellevue Hospital on the east side of the island. Others were shipped to a new facility in a small village in Westchester County called Sing Sing. And what year was this? Well, that was 1828. Okay. Two years later, the city even had other options out on Blackwell's Island. And it was there that a penitentiary was built in 1832 for criminals of more serious offenses with longer sentences. And they would be imprisoned in individual cells. Now, this was rather revolutionary for the day. Imprisoned in individual cells in order to find penitence or repentance for their crimes, thus penitentiary. Ah, and while they were out in Blackwell's Island, they were also not just idle, they were working. Uh, This was a working penitentiary, and the inmates, among other things, 
constructed the other kind of public institutions located out on Blackwell's Island, which would later be renamed Welfare Island and then later Roosevelt Island. So it's the 1830s. The city is experiencing huge growth uh, because the Erie Canal opened in 1825. There's a boom in population. There's also a boom in crime. And Yes, that's true. And that prison, Bridewell, that was located behind City Hall that's still open? Well, first of all, City Hall is actually built there in in 1812. So now you actually have like the center of government sitting right next to this old decaying prison. It also, by the way, it has a very dark reputation, Bridewell, because during the Revolutionary War, even when the building was had yet to be completed, it was half finished, the British actually housed American patriots here and uh, and soldiers. So this was kind of a blight and a bad symbol, and the city had talked for years about demolishing it, but it did sit here for many, many years until they finally came up with a plan in an area around a newly drained pond just north of City Hall. I had this sinking feeling that you were going to set me up like that, Greg. (laughs) Taking us back to Collect Pond. One of our favorite stories, oft-told stories on the podcast. I'm going to approach it perhaps from a different angle. Um, Yesterday, I spent the day in the, the fabulous library at the New York Historical Society, looking through 19th century books, guides to prisons, long gone, Greg. What what a way to spend a sunny afternoon. <laughs> but one of the documents I was looking at was an illustration, a scene that appeared in a Valentine's Manual of Old New York about 100 years ago. And, and the picture showed this collection of two- and three-story Dutch-style farmhouses that were dotted around a peaceful body of water. And there were rolling hills and lines of trees and Footbridges over creeks, neat little picket fence that lined the property around one farmhouse, while on the far side of the pond, there was another three-story house peeked out over the trees from atop a hill. That body of water, believe it or not, was the Collect, or Collect Pond, um, also called the Freshwater Pond. And in the 18th century in New York City, that was the city's main freshwater source. And to pin this down on a map here, uh, Mm -hmm. where specifically, where was Old Collect Pond? It was located just northeast of today's City Hall, um, back behind the municipal buildings, the area of today's Columbus Park. It was very large. It took up about 50 acres of space because it was a sprawling pond. It took up about eight or nine of today's city blocks, and the pond itself had a depth of about 60 feet. So this provided drinking water, also plenty of food uh, in the warmer months because people would fish here. And in the winter months, it was recreational. People went ice skating here and had a good time. But all this sounds too good to be true and too much like a fantasy version of old New York. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened? Well, as we've discussed in some other shows, including one on Collect Pond, things got stinky. Even by the late 18th century, the city's population was growing up around the pond. Uh, there were factories and tanneries and breweries and things that were, were locating around the pond because they needed fresh water. They also needed a place to dump their wastewater. And this was long before, you know, there was any EPA to regulate, you know, <laughs> pollution. No Green New Deal. The only Green New Deal was like crawling around the inside of Collect Pond. 
<laughs> but by the by the beginning of the 19th century, this pond was actually getting kind of dangerous. And furthermore, there were streams coming out of this pond, and they were kind of heading, they were hindering the city's ability to grow northward because they were creating kind of swampy marshland north and west of the pond. So even like the area of today's Broadway, north of City Hall, land was very hard to settle. Parts of Broadway were even hard to to traverse. So an impediment in many different ways here, and they needed to get rid of it. So how did they how did they drain this? Well, so there were these streams coming out of the pond, including one from the northwest corner of the pond that made its way westward over to the Hudson River. So the plan was to use the streams that were already there to drain the pond. Essentially dredging those little streams and making them into a canal. Yes, a a very prominent, like, 40-foot-wide canal. A street, Canal Street, would eventually run along much of that original stream's path. But but imagine that for years, it was actually open. There was this huge open ditch. So, of course, it became just an open sewer. Yeah, yes. That would later be covered. It would still stink, so it would be filled in. But even with the water gone, there's this land indention, right? I mean, if it's going down almost 60 feet in some spots, what did they fill this up with then to, to level out the land? Well, rewinding just a couple years to January of 1808, the city's economy was in trouble. The weather had been brutal. People were out of work and they were hungry. So hungry men, many of them who had worked on the docks, picketed in front of City Hall and were demanding some kind of work and some kind of some ration of food, which had never really been done before. Uh, City Hall was kind of alarmed by this. So they responded by hiring those men to help drain and fill in the pond. They were paid five cents a cartload to cut down the hills around Collect Pond and fill it in. And this goes down as really one of the city's first public works projects. There were several hills around this area that were where the picnicking happened, for instance. Right. And so they essentially, by the late 1810s here, right, we have a we have a pond that's drained and filled in. Unfortunately for the neighborhood, it had been filled in rather poorly without proper drainage and underground springs were still kind of bubbling up down there. And upon this unstable land... The city laid out streets. They actually continued streets that had stopped at the shore of the pond. Mm -hmm. They continued them sort of on a straight trajectory. And developers constructed middle-class housing upon those new streets. This sounds almost immediately problematic uh, because they're building structures with foundations that are that are shifting. Yeah, well, you know, the the house frames shifted. People were like falling around their houses, falling out of bed realizing that this was not the best place to live, and they relocated as soon as they could, leaving behind their old homes, most of which were not demolished. They were mostly repurposed because by the 1820s, the city's economy was exploding, and by the 1830s, especially with Irish immigration to the city, you know, the population was exploding too, and these newly arrived immigrants were looking for low-cost housing. And this sounds like it probably entered the market at a very low cost. Very low cost, especially because many of these structures were subdivided, even rooms rented out. As the neighborhood became increasingly crowded and the streets filled with unspeakable filth. 
And this neighborhood would be known as Five Points. Now, where specifically is this located? What are the Five Points? The Five Points were the intersection of three streets on the site of the old pond. So the the extensions of those streets that I was talking about before. And these three streets are today's Baxter Street, called Orange Street at the time, today's Worth Street, Anthony Street at the time, and Park Street, which was called Cross Street. And stay with me here, because the, the collision of those three streets created five points, or five street corners, which, as the neighborhood became increasingly run down and dangerous, that intersection and then the whole neighborhood began to be referred to as the five points. On today's map, you know, because most of this was wiped away, really, it's it's roughly the southwest corner of Columbus Park mm-hmm. at Worth Street. And it was here, here, this neighborhood became renowned for gang activity, for crime, later for the publication of articles and books about the squalor and the vice of Five Points neighborhood. And the overcrowding did not just exist in the former houses, but even in some of the former buildings and a brewery, for example, which became sort of a symbol of Five Points, uh, the old brewery. It, it had operated for decades. The Colthard Brewery, which was constructed in the 1790s when it was just up against the pond. Well, in the late 1830s, that brewery had closed and it was converted into really low-rent housing for the most unfortunate men, women, and children in the city. Now, this old brewery goes down in history as one of the most loathsome spots for it was believed that up to a thousand people lived in the brewery and that perhaps up to a murder a day took place here at the brewery. And to put it on a map, that brewery was located at the southwest corner of Five Points, uh, just off of Cross Street or Park Street. So a truly chaotic place, chaotic neighborhood, and perhaps a place that could use a little law and order. Yeah, because by 1830, the city's population had reached 200,000, crime had risen, and the city was looking for a location to replace its old Bridewell prison. So so the city chose in 1833 a site for the new prison, the block from Center to Lafayette and from Franklin down to Leonard. Today, it's the site of the Collect Pond Park. The city hired the architect John Haviland to design the structure, which, as you mentioned, included more than just a simple prison. It included a men's prison, a women's prison, and many courtrooms. Now, given that this is the pretty much the largest construction project in this area, I can't imagine that it was an easy process to create a foundation for a block-length building. No, the land was simply too wet and unstable. It was a very slow process. One of the books that I spent time with was the 1909 book, The New York Tombs Inside and Out! Exclamation point by the Reverend John Monroe, uh, the former reverend at the Old Tombs. So he came out with this kind of expose. A memoir. A memoir in 1909 (laughs) about what life was like inside the tombs. He wrote, quote, 
For over a year, the construction of the new building was slow, as the filling in of the pond had not been properly done. The ground was so wet and springy that the foundation of the new prison had to be laid on pine logs, fastened to the ground by spiles. And Greg, this would be a problem that would plague the tombs, not just during construction, but throughout its entire existence. You know, there was just always water on the lowest floor. They they couldn't they couldn't seem to keep collect pond at bay. They just couldn't keep it dry. But up it went slowly, taking up the entire block. It was this massive structure with a stone facade, four huge columns topping the main entranceway, the staircase going up. Granite for its construction was used from the old Bridewell prison behind City Hall. So they they literally dismantled the old prison to build the new prison. It was recycled. But can we speak for a moment about the architectural style of this building Mm. because we're not talking a federal style building or something in in the model of a city hall or something that you might see around Washington Square. It had a distinctly Egyptian look to it. Yes, and it's not exactly clear how the the design or the name, uh, the sort of moniker attached to the building was chosen. But one popular theory holds that it was inspired by the travels of a man named John Stevens of Hoboken. He was a a world traveler, he was an explorer, he was a writer, and he had recently returned from Egypt and the Holy Lands, where he had been greatly impressed uh, by ancient architecture that he saw. According to another book that I was looking at yesterday, a tiny little book called Life in the Tombs, A History of Notable Crimes, a little handbook that was published in 1878, quote, About this time, there was published a book entitled Stevens Travels. The author was John L. Stevens, Esquire of Hoboken, who had recently returned from an extended tour through Asia and the Holy Land. The book was full of interest and contained many illustrations of the rare and curious things he had seen. Among these illustrations was one of the Egyptian tomb, accompanied by a full and accurate description. The committee appointed by the Common Council to decide upon the necessary plans for the new prison were impressed with the idea of erecting a building whose general appearance and construction should correspond with the tomb described in Stephen's book. They accordingly made their report recommending the construction of such a building, suggesting as a most fitting and appropriate name, The Tombs. The report was adopted and work was begun at once." What's interesting about this particular choice that they made is that we just generally didn't know a lot about Egyptian culture Mm -hmm. back then. The only thing they were responding to were the actual appearances and the symbols of Egyptian architecture. You mean they hadn't really thought through that they were naming a prison after a mausoleum? No, it just seems unnecessarily severe. It's frightening. You look at old pictures, this building is absolutely frightening. The whole thing was this giant rectangular building 253 feet long and about 200 feet deep. There were long windows along the street side. To get inside, you walked up a main entrance, uh, stone steps that took you up to the front doors along Center Street, topped by four huge Egyptian columns. You're going to take us inside Mm -hmm. in a second. And initially, when you entered, you had access to both courtrooms and the prison right there in that central building. Eventually, the the prison in the main structure would be too crowded, so they would have to construct a separate men's prison in the courtyard 
of the tombs, a prison with four levels. The inmates were divided up, actually, into different levels. So the ground floor was for convicts, those who were actually serving time. The second floor was for those who were charged with serious offenses, like arson and murder and that sort of thing. The third floor was for grand larceny, for burglary, and the top floor was more minor offenses. They put the small crimes at the top, oddly enough. Well, I think that they probably did that because the people at the top needed the least oversight. Okay, so now that we've entered the tombs here, what's life like inside this very imposing building? We'll check ourselves into the tombs after this. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+.
Today's show is also brought to you by the Flatiron School. When we look back at the state of the workforce in 10 years' time, how will we view our careers and the emergence of technology within business? Flatiron School is a global school that trains students in 21st century skills in software engineering, data science, and UX UI design to help you transform with the tech changes that are happening right now. Born in New York City, Flatiron can help you develop modern skills for the evolving digital world in as little as four months. Whether you want to learn in person or online, Flatiron students change careers and their lives with confidence thanks to Flatiron's money-back guarantee, where you'll receive a job offer within six months of graduating or Flatiron will refund your full tuition. Terms and conditions may apply. Start your career transformation today with Flatiron School. Visit flatironschool.com slash NYC to learn how you can get started today. All right. Inside the tombs, Tom. And how about instead of me describing the interior of the tombs, mm-hmm. how about we turn to the words of the most famous author to ever see the inside of the tombs? That would be Charles Dickens, who published the following account in 1842. What is this dismal-fronted pile of bastard Egyptian, like an enchanter's palace in a melodrama? A famous prison called the Tombs. Shall we go in? A long, narrow, lofty building stove-heated as usual, with four galleries, one above the other, going round it and communicating by stairs. Between the two sides of each gallery, and in its center, a bridge for the greater convenience of crossing. On each tier are two opposite rows of small iron doors. They look like furnace doors, but are cold and black, as though the fires within had all gone out. The hole is lighted by a skylight, but it is fast closed, and from the roof there dangle, limp and drooping, two useless wind sails. Let us look into a cell, a small bare cell, into which the light enters through a high chink in the wall. There is a rude means of washing, a table, and a bedstead. And that was an account that Charles Dickens published in his book, American Notes, in 1842. Shouldn't we do a whole show on Dickens in New York, Greg? (laughs) One one of these days soon, I think we'll we'll visit Mr. Dickens. But here at the Tombs, when it opened in 1838, it was originally designed to house 300 prisoners. I mean, I've seen various numbers because, of course... It never went under-occupied. In fact, it often contained double that number. And by the 1880s, sometimes cells would have triple the number of occupants with up to three people in each cell. But Dickens here in 1842 is visiting the original configuration of the tombs. Later on, a second prison would be built inside of this building. And this would be to house male prisoners. I should add a very critical space here at the tombs was actually a large room on the north side of the building that was nicknamed Bummer's Hall. 
And this is where vagrants and disorderly people charged with disorderly conduct and quote unquote smaller crimes, they would be thrown here into Bummer's Hall before being either moved to cells or to, you know, released back out into the street. But this room was, in for many, actually one of the most unpleasant places because you would sometimes be trapped here for days. And, and it without, was like a big holding tank. Yeah, right? you, you didn't have, there were no seats, there were no beds here. So when people were being kind of hauled off to the tombs because of disorderly conduct, they were usually thrown into Bummer's Hall. Yes, and then as eventually processed. As you mentioned, inside the prison as well, there was a women's prison administered by the Sisters of Charity. And in the 1880s, alongside the women's prison, there would be a separate boys' prison. So they would be administered side by side. Apparently, they did such a bad job with the boys' prison that it was essentially seen as a school for crime, where many young men here actually kind of like met up, learned the tricks of the trade, created new gangs, and, you know, and essentially bolstered a life of crime. It was like a free education in criminality, and people were coming... And many of these boys were coming from the streets right outside the tombs. Yeah, I mean, their homes, uh, you know, were just a block or two away from here, which is an extraordinary thing to think about. Now, there would be, of course, courtrooms inside the tombs, a police court and a court of special sessions. But I want to point out six cells. There are, there are six cells that are special cells. They were larger than the rest. Sometimes they were even furnished cells. These were for... The famous, almost the celebrity, celebrity inmates. These were for the bigwigs, those who had committed crimes but were on the front page. VIPs, very important prisoners. And often connected in some way with Tammany Hall. For, of course, uh, at a certain point, this prison was as much politicized as anything else in the city. If you knew somebody. If you knew someone, you could be upgraded to one of these special cells. All of which underscores again that the Tombs is located really between City Hall and Five Points. I mean, it's the perfect confluence of those two forces. Yeah. The city is growing so insanely at this time. So in 1840, so two years after the Tombs opens, the city has a little over 300,000 people. By 1890, sort of near the end of the duration of this particular tombs, there's 1.5 million people. So as a result, of course, there is a rise in crime, not only throughout the whole city, but here in this very neighborhood, here at Five Points. And the gang activity was truly notorious. But all of this that was happening around the tombs thus made the tombs itself an extremely bustling place with hundreds of people coming in and out to and fro every single day because prisoners could receive visitors. I was going to ask about that. So you could, could they also receive packages and gifts? Yeah. So uh, that's how many of them remained fed, but you can get food from home. People could bring you food. They could bring you clothing, whatever you wanted. They could bring you cigarettes. And although it was not authorized, if you just wrapped it up in a pretty bow, you could even get alcohol or drugs to people if they wanted them. Of course, not to give a little foreshadowing, but you could also smuggle in other types of things. things that Like they escape mi- tools? Yes, things that they might use to actually get out. 
But to be clear, most of the inmates here were not serving their prison sentences. Most were awaiting trial or they, they were awaiting being moved to a penitentiary or some other facility. Yes. However, there was a more ominous purpose to the tombs because, of course, there would be some who would enter the tombs but would never leave. For the tombs was the site of dozens of executions, especially here in the early years of the tombs here. So the mid-19th century. And where did those executions take place? So these were hangings, mm-hmm. and they were all in the courtyard under the bridge. So there was a bridge that was linking the, the two sides of the building, which connected the original men's prison on one side and the women's prison on the other. Those who were about to be executed had to pass under that bridge to get to the gallows. And as a result, this bridge was nicknamed the Bridge of Sighs. In a rather dark homage to the Venetian Bridge of Sighs uh, at the Doge's Palace. And we should add that later versions of the tomb's prison and house of detentions that are around this site would all have like sky bridges or different things that would take on that nickname also, the Bridge of Sighs. But you said that they were hanging people right here in the 19th century in a courtyard. Executions here in five points. Believe it or not, executions of convicted criminals had actually taken place in public in New York quite frequently, especially all throughout the 18th century. And as late as 1824, for instance, a public hanging of a murderer named John Johnson took place in a field at 13th Street and 2nd Avenue, which drew thousands of spectators. So that's 1824. That's not even 200 years ago. And there were public executions just out in the street. But by the 1840s, by law, executions had to be performed inside and with very limited spectacle. Charles Dickens actually describes a execution in his book from 1842. Quote, The prison yard, in which he pauses now, has been the scene of terrible performances. Into this narrow, grave-like place, men are brought out to die. The wretched creature stands beneath the gibbet on the ground, the rope about his neck, and when the sign is given, a weight at the other end comes running down and swings him up into the air, a corpse." The law requires that there be present at this dismal spectacle the judge, the jury, and citizens to the amount of 25. From the community it is hidden. To the dissolute and bad, the thing remains a frightful mystery. All beyond the pitiful stone wall is unknown space. So New Yorkers who are just walking by the tombs would have no idea that on the other side of that wall... Convicted criminals are being hanged. And would continue to be executed here for a few decades. For instance, in 1862, the only man convicted and executed for crimes involving the slave trade in the United States, a man named Nathaniel Gordon, he was executed here at the tombs. His crime actually fell under the violation of the U.S. Piracy Act, and in fact was the last person ever executed under that act. The Piracy Act. So a slave trader here was convicted under the, yes. the piracy, like a like he was convicted as a pirate. Yes. Tom, I do have a story of an actual 
pirate that was held here at the tombs and executed in New York City, and a story that illustrates the chaotic, circus-like nature of this place. Okay. His name was Albert E. Hicks, and he was accused of piracy in 1860 and would indeed be executed out at Bedloe's Island, the future home of the Statue of Liberty. Now, he was so renowned, his story had grabbed all the headlines, that prison guards charged admission, like as though, as though the tombs were an attraction. People could come to the tombs, they could pay admission, and just see Mr. Hicks in his cell here at the tombs. In fact, for a premium fee, if you paid a little extra, you could actually speak to Albert E. Hicks. What? That is spectacularly bad taste. I yes. mean, th- we're, we're kind of veering into P.T. Barnum territory. Oh, well, it gets better because P.T. Barnum comes into the story oh, here. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay, but I am not surprised. He comes in. He makes a plaster cast uh-huh. of uh, Mr. Hicks's head that he can then display at his American museum. I hope he had Hicks's permission for that. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. In fact, he gave him a little present. He gave him a pirate's costume for him to wear when he was eventually executed. Now, Mr. Hicks didn't really... He was an ill-fitting costume. He didn't like it at the, at the very end. But um, that was his gift back to this convicted pirate. Hicks is then eventually executed in this Barnum costume. But let's go back to the fact that the, the security guards were charging admission to, sp- to spectators to come in and to ogle an inmate. Yeah, That's- it's a free-for-all. People were using this place to actually enrich themselves in many different ways. Again, once Tammany Hall, like the political power shifted in New York City and they kind of ran the place, uh, they could give out some of those jobs, patronage jobs to loyalists. And of course, you know, the people you were giving those jobs to had no experience in this. And in fact, were often friends with friends, those being locked <laughs> with up. With those being locked up. And so they weren't having. The everyday workings of the tombs did not exactly have law and order in mind on a day-to-day basis. Which is ironic because a century later, law and order would be filming inside (laughs) the new tombs. (laughs) That's extraordinary, right? Now, speaking of Tammany, I should add that many of the courts that were here in this building would move out in the late 1870s and early 1880s to a new courthouse close by associated with William Boss Tweed, the aforementioned Tweed Courthouse. And if you haven't heard our recent episode on the Tweed Courthouse, we recommend listening to it because it is filled with corruption and scandal. <laughs> yes. Um, Mr. Tweed, of course, the, the leader of, that, of, of said scandal, would actually be imprisoned here in the tombs for a full year in 1873. And I'm going to assume that he got upgraded to one of those luxury suites <laughs> yes. in the prison. But you've painted a rather no-holds-barred, if you will. If you will, <laughs> yes. Uh, a, a picture of the the prison itself. Were the courts any better? Were, was there at least a little glimmer of justice taking place in the courtrooms? Only for a very few. I mean... I wish we had more time to tell some of these smaller stories of the thousands of people who were jailed here without due process or those who were kept here because they couldn't afford bail. 
which is most people. I mean, essentially, you had a form of law enforcement here that was if you could pay your bail, you were essentially freed. And if you couldn't pay your bail, even if you were innocent, you were treated as though you were guilty. Then, of course, you had many of those people who were unfairly imprisoned here, then being sent off to other facilities, getting kind of lost in the system in a way that I think that people looking at our prison system today can see some parallels in. There were also disreputable lawyers and bail bondsmen coming in and out, paying off those guards, uh, scouring the cells for, you know, for marks, the people that they could take advantage of in this situation. There was no oversight. There was almost no oversight. But all of that is playing out in a building in deteriorating conditions. And this is one of the tomb's most unique problems in the universe of prisons and houses of detention throughout the world is the fact that this building is almost like a medieval dungeon. And that's not just because it it felt like a dungeon with bad, you know, heating and improper airflow. Yeah, and uh, no light to speak of in, in many of the cells. No, I'm actually speaking of the swampy ground on which it was built upon, right? Let's get back to the fact that this was a building that had been constructed atop what had been Collect Pond. This meant that the building walls themselves were cracking. Sewage was leaking into the lower floor. So if you were on the first floor, your, uh, your cell would often fill with water. Sometimes even the courtrooms would be flooded. On hot summer days, the whole place essentially smelled like a toilet. Drains would often erupt at like sort of like high traffic periods and create like fountains of sewage during the day. Despicable conditions. Foul, yes. It's a wonder that inmates weren't constantly trying to break out of that place. Well, well, actually, I would say that they were trying to break out all the time. Um, you know, and there's so many stories. We, can, we can't focus, for instance, on the Newsies who were locked in here in 1899 during the Newsie strike or Madame Restelle, who was also housed here for a time. I want to instead end on one story of a successful prison break. Someone successfully escaped the tombs. And his name was William Sharkey. He was a member of a of the so-called Sharkey's gang from the Five Points neighborhood who got in really good with the Tweed Ring and even became a low-rung New York politician, as they did back in the 1870s. Unsurprisingly. Unsurprisingly. In 1872, Sharkey shot and killed a man over a gambling debt. He was promptly locked up in the tombs. I'm going to just assume in one of those nicer cells, given his connections. When you read a description of the cell, it sounds like it has a a charming exterior. And also the fact that Sharky was frequently drunk in his cell, meaning that someone was giving him... So he got that somehow. (laughs) Yes. Well, on November 22nd, 1873, he managed to escape dressed in women's clothing. He walked out the front door in drag. In fact, he eventually went to live in Cuba and then moved to Spain and was never again apprehended. Wait, he escaped in drag? Yes, 1873, the New York Times later reported, quote, This person was attired in a suit of black silk with shawl, bonnet, and a heavy white silk veil. Jailkeeper Phillips declared that he made this person lift the veil and not seeing anything suspicious, passed the person out into the yard. 
Now, whether this be so or not, the person so attired was William J. Sharkey. His slight build, effeminate appearance, and completeness of costume all favored him. And he passed through the yard to the outer gate. In a second, the condemned felon was in the street free. Such is the plain story. So he literally escaped from the tombs dressed like Mommy Sharky. Yes. But here we are at the end of the 19th century and really the end of the line for the tombs because it had become a dismal sight. It was nasty and outdated and dirty and unsafe. From that 1878 small booklet, Life in the New York Tombs, by the 1870s, the walls in several places are sunken to a considerable extent. Not many years since a crack, fully four inches in width, which extended from the top onto the bottom, was discovered in, some of the wa- in one of the walls. It was occasioned by the sinking of some of the foundation stones. Someday the people may be startled by the announcement that the city prison has become a tomb indeed. One thing you don't want in a busy urban place is a crumbling jail that could one day just fall open and free everyone. Or one that's just really unsafe for the inhabitants. Mm -hmm. And by the 1890s, a reform movement and reformers in general were winning elections in New York, were cleaning up the five points and cleaning up the corruption of Tammany Hall. And, And Mayor William Strong, who was a reformer in the 1890s, pushed through plans to construct a new prison. And that facility, which would also be nicknamed the Tombs, Mm -hmm. would be built on the same spot as this original Tombs. Yes, and this would be called the City Prison. It would be designed by Frederick Clark Withers and Walter Dixon. Now, this new and improved Tombs contained 320 cells, which each included um, all of the new modern improvements of the day, including running water and electric lights and toilets. The building was expensive. It cost over a million dollars to construct, and it looked like a giant chateau. Kind of looks like the Plaza Hotel. (laughs) This building also contained another bridge of size. It connected it across Franklin Street to the criminal court building, which was on the north side of Franklin. That had been constructed in 1892. But during the construction of this building... You know, the crews were again battling the old waters of Collect Pond that were seeping back into the foundations. I think one reason that they went with this chateau style is that the neighborhood itself is changing quite drastically. They've had a huge slum clearance project here that wiped away dozens of old tenements. And in its place is a now manicured park today called Columbus Park, and that is now situated right next to this city prison. Yes, Five Points has been wiped off the map. Its reputation was so poisonous. That was that was part of the reason why they took the streets off the map and renamed others. That's right, and that's why it's so hard to find the actual Five Points spot today. And the closest thing we can really say is that southwest corner of Columbus Park. So how long would this fancy chateau-style city prison sit here on the spot? Uh, Until the 1940s. In fact, in 1941, it was replaced by a newer tombs, which opened across the street east of here, on the eastern side of Center Street. And that building still stands today. It's a huge complex of four 
Art Deco towers that are linked together. The three towers, the three southernmost towers in that building were mostly courthouses and offices. And the northern tower was the new house of detention starting in 1941. Unsurprisingly, conditions here also became deplorable with terrible overcrowding. There were twice as many prisoners held here than it was constructed for. So that by 1974, the city needed to close this house of detention as well. Inmates were shipped off to Rikers Island. But that building is still there today? Yes. And actually, it was renovated and then reopened in 1983. And a newer detention facility was opened across White Street from it in 1990. So those two buildings make up the Manhattan Detention Complex. Uh, and they're connected today by a sky bridge. Which is sometimes called the Bridge of Size. And that detention complex is often referred to today as the tombs. To go back to something you said earlier, the site of the original tombs Mm -hmm. is today an area called Collect Pond Park. And it is located just south of the New York City Civil Court. That's right. If today you visit Collect Pond Park, stand in the middle of that park It's not as much fun as Columbus Park that's a block away, but stand in the middle of that park located between Lafayette and Center and just north of Leonard Street, and you will be standing on the site of the notorious original tombs. For some really interesting images, illustrations, and photographs of the old tombs, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And, of course, you can also find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Pivoting from the tombs for a second, we hope that you will join us on June 5th, 2019 at the New York Historical Society when we interview author and professor George Chauncey on gay life before Stonewall. That is going to be a very fun conversation. We've already met with George and conjured up some things to speak about at the Historical Society where it should be a really engaging and fun conversation. Yeah, we gabbed for about two hours about what we should talk about for an hour. (laughs) Should be interesting. Yes, that is at the New York Historical Society on Wednesday, June 5th. 2019. For tickets, you can head to our blog or go to the New York Historical Society website. nyhistory.org. Of course, a huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. It's because of your support that we are able to dedicate our time to creating the Bowery Boys podcast. We couldn't do it without you. You'll be joining patrons like Catherine H., Michael M., Gwen B., Julia S., and Stephen A. D. from New York, Spencer W. from Pennsylvania, James S., Heather R., and Roman M., all from Washington State, and Michael V. from the Netherlands. Thanks to you and to the nearly 850 others who have joined with your support. Patrons do receive a special secret RSS feed so that you can download our patron-only podcast that we produce called the Bowery Boys Movie Club. And this month's episode celebrates the 50th anniversary of the only X-rated movie to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. The film is Midnight Cowboy. You know, it's probably the only X-rated picture that we will ever talk about on Bowery (laughs) Boys Movie Club. You never know, Tom. Don't shut that door. I'm going to shut it. (laughs) 
So thank you for supporting us on Patreon. A big thank you to the librarians and the archivists at the New York Historical Society for helping me out with research yesterday. They helped bring the tombs to life for me. And I will just throw out, Greg, that um, the library door, uh, every time it opened, it's located right next to the Historical Society's new excellent Stonewall exhibit. Uh, So every time the door would open to the library, I would hear the voice of Gloria Gaynor belting forth. (laughs) It was like a combination of 19th century documents and disco. It was like my very happiest place. (laughs) That is beautiful. I will survive. (laughs) Finally, we have merchandise for sale. We've got merch? Yeah. So if you're looking for to make a if you're looking to make a fashion statement this spring and summer, just head over to our website to pick up a Bowery Boys t-shirt and, and, and maybe a tote bag. I'm not sure what we're offering. We've got tote bags? <laughs> I think so. I can't remember what we're offering right now, but check it out. We'd love for you to join us in the streets, too. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to find out about the latest walking tours that we've developed with some of the city's best tour guides. We've got walks around Greenwich Village, NoHo, Ladies Mile, historic Broadway theaters, even one of the 1939 and 64 World's Fairs. And a hot one on the life of Edith Wharton. So check out those at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you so much for joining us on this visit to the tombs. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.